0: Welcome along to the very first ever Fanderson Podcast. My name is Ros Connors and I'm hosting this over the next hour and we hope you're going to find it informative and fun. So sit down, strap in, turn the volume up and enjoy. Once again, welcome along to the first ever Fanderson podcast. And I'm not alone today. I've got some help. And I've decided to chat uh, with Fanderson's Fab Magazine editor, Ian Fryer, who joins me by the power of Zoom. And I hope you're doing well in lockdown there, uh, Ian, all the way up there in Yorkshire. I'm
1: fine. Like the power of Zoom it's like ice lollies. That's how we're talking to each other, through ice lollies. <laughs>
0: Now, how did I guess that you would make a gag out of that, Ian? Zoom was very popular in the days of Captain Scarlet and Joe 90, wasn't it?
1: It was, yes. I've still got eight millimetre film versions of those adverts uh, squirrelled away upstairs.
0: But did you ever have a fab lolly? Because it was just for girls, wasn't it, Ian?
1: Oh, yes. I I broke gender boundaries. Uh,
0: anyway, I hope that we're going to enlighten, inform, and possibly entertain Fanderson, the club, today with topics we're going to talk about. And hopefully, we're going to cover some uh, issues that crop up on Facebook. Fanderson members have queries. They speculate over certain things in the shows. Now, you've done a lot of publications, haven't you, Ian? We we do a lot of research for Fanderson. I've recently worked. If anybody wants to know my background, it is in broadcasting, although I've done quite a lot of research very, very recently for the UFO 4 CD set, which has just been released by Fanderson. So I do hope that our members are going to... Um, purchase it and enjoy it but with the research that's done obviously new information can come forth and uh, we can share it with uh, the listeners wherever this might be posted I think it's going to be on the Fanderson Facebook page Ian so that is where it's likely to be digested but We've got to think of some topics to talk about and I thought that in this podcast we could even include some old interviews as well and perhaps some material that Fanderson members have not heard before. Scheduled later on in this hour, we're going to dip back in the archive and uh, hear an interview from the late, great Barry Morse. But I wanted to talk to you about Doppelganger because I know this is a film that you've researched a great deal It's one of my favourite films. I know it as Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, which of course is its American title. But uh, you sent me, ages ago now, a load of paperwork on it, Ian, which is very interesting to look at. There were some letters in there. It seemed to have had a lot of uh, problems getting certified as an A certificate film, which is the way they certified these movies back in the day. There was... U certificates, there were A certificates and double A and X. If I, am, am I correct here?
1: Yes, that's how I remember it. Yes, and back in the days when we were allowed to leave our homes and go to neighbouring counties, um, I took the National Express bus down to London, and went through the uh, British Board of Film Classification file for Doppelganger, which was fascinating reading.
0: What did you discover there?
1: Uh, strange things like they had that you wouldn't think they would have trouble passing, like. The entire subject about uh, the Roy Thinner's character may have been made uh, infertile due to being up in space, which is a subplot in the film, um, was was very much uh, looked down upon by the people at the BBFC and they were very worried about it.
0: For anybody outside of the UK who doesn't know, that stands for the British Board of Film Censors.
1: And in fact, in the British print of the film, there's one shot, very minor shot, that is cut. And it's where Lynn Loring you know, actually picks up um, a packet of uh, birth control pills. No, I beg your pardon, they've been sort of thrust in her face by Roy Finners. <laughs> and uh, when they're, they're having a domestic, when she's just gone out of the shower. And in the British print, the close up of the pills is cut because they were so worried about this entire subject. And, uh, and I thought, God, oh, this is so strange. And then, as it happened, I had the opportunity to watch uh, the release version and um, another print of the film, the UK print of the film, side by side. And sure enough, in the UK print of the film, not one shot is cut. And I later then spoke to Jerry Anderson about it because he did a, he did a producer's commentary for us of the film. And, uh, and he completely verified the story. He told that story completely unbidden and said, yep, yeah, they gave us terrible problems. And all this was over things that the speed at which um, film censorship was changing, even six months later, nobody would have given that entire subject a second thought.
0: Incredible, but, you know, isn't censorship
1: it? Was, the censorship rules were, were changing and developing so quickly um, that... The, these old-fashioned attitudes were just melting away. But unfortunately, Doppelganger, which is usually a laziness, I still call the film. I've had to type it out so often. I, I cannot be bothered to type Journey to the Far Side of the Sun every time. So it's mm. Doppelganger to me. Now, to be
0: fair to our Fanderson members here, a lot of the members will have seen it on television first. They may yes. not have been around at the time of the original cinema release. Now, in the UK, it was released as Doppelganger but on yes. television it was shown only as Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. Yep. And what people originally saw was possibly an altered version of that movie, not the version, apart from the title, that is, a version that had been changed slightly since the yes. original release. So, a By lot of way, people, the later like version is the right. original version. Yeah. Even if somebody
1: was the right age to have seen it at the cinema, you would have blinked and missed it. It had about a two-week release um, on a double bill. It was the top half of the double bill, to be fair. Uh, and the film it was put it was a western.
0: Oh gosh,
1: uh, starring um, Richard Widmark, uh, called Death of a Gunfighter.
0: Now, people keep asking which is the original version of the film because there seem to be so many different versions of it. And uh, if one purchases the i think it's the madman australian blu-ray disc it has two different cuts of the film on one of them is a recent cut which is the remastered one and the other one is a print that actually belonged to jerry and sylvia which would have been the original cinema release yes with the doppelganger title on it so i i would have said and i'll put this to you that that would have been the version that went out in cinemas the first time, the Jerry and Sylvia Anderson. It's a battered print that's included yes. on the Madman disc. And but it is original as what was shown in the British cinemas at the time. Yes,
1: that's right. Although it doesn't I don't think it quite um, represents what they wanted on the screen, because that's the version, as I remember, with the with the cut, with the sensor cut.
0: Right. But it has the side shot of the pack. You don't see what is in that. There's a
1: big close up of it, which gets caught.
0: Yes. And then later on in the film, there's a flashback sequence where you do see the pack face on. And wasn't there a situation that occurred where Jerry was told you can have one shot of that pack in the whole of the film, but not two shots?
1: Yeah, I mean these are the kind of uh, little sort of games of poker that the people had to play with the with the BBFC back then. Um, the likes of uh, the Carry On producers and Hammer were very used to this, and so in fact they would the, the Carry On people, for instance, which is the sort of subject I'm researching at the moment, they will put more rude jokes in than they needed because they knew that then they could have a game of poker with the BBFC people when they read the scripts and eventually what will come out will be what they actually wanted and of course Jerry this was his first A picture as a producer and he didn't know that side of the game
0: Right Now there's another instance in Doppelganger we're talking here as well about some of the questions posed on the Fanderson Facebook page something that was asked very recently is voiceover at the end an echoey voice at the end that appears in the version that they remember years ago seeing on television but doesn't appear in any of the blu-rays or dvd versions released recently do you have a theory on that
1: partially it's just because of the, the troubled history of the film universal hated it um that's why it's like a year between it being delivered and it being released they just had no confidence in it and there's a filmy story and this gets really interesting because that's when you get variant versions of films if the studio likes it they won't mess about with it so so that's my only theory is that you know they were they had an ending that was a real downer as it was and maybe they just wanted to soften it somehow but that's my theory about doppelganger anyway what? if they would found some making the ending less depressing people might have come out of the cinema happier and recommended it to their friends.
0: If we go back to the Jerry and Sylvia Anderson film print on the Madman Blu-ray, the version there is without the voiceover. So the doppelganger print, as shown in cinemas at the time, must therefore be the original version without that voiceover. This is my theory that that voiceover was added later on. Wasn't there a second yes. release of the film as a, they tried to get it through as a U certificate?
1: I don't think they did. There was certainly a th- They certainly made a universal, asked if that would be a possibility, and I don't think it went beyond the theoretical stage. There is paperwork about this, um, but it would have so eviscerated the film that I don't think there would have been anything worth releasing.
0: Well, then another theory would be that uh, it was possibly added for a television version because we know that some movies are actually altered for television distribution as well
1: yeah that's right and and at which stage you know jerry would have lost interest in the film because that was his mindset he never looked back um so that would only have happened at universal's end and of course they had all the rights to the film anyway
0: yes of course and uh he had no say in where it was distributed the title change which of course occurred as a result a journey to the far side of the sun is how it was distributed in the united states wasn't it
1: yeah and i certainly get universal's point in liking that title it has it's a big adventure has a big jules verne feel about it and kind of looks good on the poster Whereas um, I like Doppelganger because it's sharp and it's snappy and sounds a bit like a Bond film.
0: <laughs> but of course, it's a space adventure. And back in the day, they used to see these space things as being attractive for youngsters.
1: Always a problem in Jerry's live action career. He wanted to make adult drama. And the people he was producing for, like TV, Universal, they saw it as a kid's um, genre. And, you know, that was. A problem with UFO and with Space Nineteen Ninety Nine.
0: Always trying to aim for adults, but uh, kind of falling between two chairs.
1: Yeah, uh, because Jerry spoke about his influences uh, at the time, and he was very much of a fan of um, a series called The Power Game, uh, created by Wilfred Greatorex, who he did try to get some pro- some um, some things off the ground with, and it didn't come off. But there are some really interesting parallels between. The power game and UFO and a, a particularly Doppelganger, because the entire character um, of Jason—good heavens, I've forgotten Jason's second name. Webb. Jason Webb. Thank you. The entire <laughs> character. <of Jason laughs>
0: Webb That's what I'm just, here for, Ian.
1: Oh dear! It's just—it's uh, just the lead from the power game, with a different hairstyle and with shiny suits.
0: What about the Roy Thinnes character, because he'd just made a name for himself by being on US television in The Invaders, which was another yeah. sci-fi series. Could it be that uh, Sylvia saw Roy in that and thought, oh, he'd be a good lead for the film because he's a bit of a looker. Well, I think he's he's good to look at. Play. We've got to admit, he's good to look at. Come on, girls, back me up. <laughs>
1: Oh, he's eye candy. Uh, I think uh, I remember Sylvia saying she thought he looked like Paul Newman. Um, but certainly that would have made him a saleable name to Universal uh, in a science fiction movie. You know, that would have been part of the, you know, he would. they would have said, oh, if you can get him, brilliant, because he will attract a science fiction fan crowd.
0: And we haven't mentioned the other lead in the film, of course, Ian Hendry, who was billed in the original version above Roy Thinness. Yeah, that's
1: right. That seems to be a, a thing where, yeah, he gets top billing in the British release prints and Thinners gets top billing in the American release prints. In, in neither version does really Hendry's character warrant top billing. You know, it's clearly Thinners' movie. Um, and. It was his first leading role in some time. His film career had declined somewhat because um, you know he did do quite a few things like *The Beauty Jungle*. He quit *The Avengers* because, uh, of course, he'd been the original lead in *The Avengers*, and uh, he didn't walk out of the series. It's actually a much more interesting story. There was an actor strike, which uh, crippled ITV for months back in the early sixties. Um, and by the time the strike was over, his contract had finished, and so he went. He walked because he had a movie contract yes. with Rank, and so went off to make movies. But by the time then you get to sixty-seven-ish, sixty-eight, when they're making uh, *Journey to the Far Side of the Sun*, uh, really he's not getting those roles anymore. He's not getting leading man roles. And he's starting to age a bit because of his unfortunate and widely known drinking habits. Yes. Uh, which were, then became well known on the set. Unfortunately, to an extent, that's a little inexperienced with Jerry working with actors because without knowing, he employed two of the most notorious drinkers in British acting.
0: The other being Patrick Weimark. Patrick Wymark,
1: that's right, yeah. Because, you know, he tells a story about uh, them going to lunch. And uh, and, they're, uh, and they're finishing lunch and about to go off. And Patrick Weimark sees all these empty glasses of all these half-empty glasses of wine at the table,
2: and
0: hoovers them up and finishes them. Really, that's a story I've not heard before.
1: And um, and I and I was speaking to Michael Chaston, um at a, at a UFO convention, and I spoke and I asked him about um, Patrick Weimar because uh, that just at that point. Uh, he made the final series of The Power Game with Weimark. And he said, yeah, he became extremely difficult to work with at that point um, because he, unusually for television, they had a lot of rehearsal time on the series and Weimark would turn up to the rehearsals drunk but to the recording sober, which meant he couldn't remember any of the stage Um. directions that they'd given him during the rehearsal process. And things had got so bad that had the series continued, uh, there was serious talk about replacing him. Uh, and they had another character all lined up that they introduced to the series in that season. And um, sadly, it didn't come to anything because why Mark Ben died uh, in a hotel room in Australia uh, while he was doing a tour of Shakespeare. Um so but you know, fortunately that's how serious Patrick Weimark's drinking had gone.
0: I recall seeing an episode of the Champions on Thames TV, it would have been back in nineteen seventy. Yeah. And I can recall Patrick Weimark being in an episode with an icebreaker. He was the captain. Yeah, and I can remember right. my mother saying at the time, Oh, he's dead. So I mean, he was dead before I even got to know who he was.
1: Yeah. Um, And he was always a lot older than he looked. Um, You know, he was in his early 40s and he was playing um, Winston Churchill a lot
0: uh,
1: (laughs) when Churchill was in his 60s and 70s. I
0: think this is true of a lot of the actors, though, of that era, because, again, Ian Hendry wasn't that old. And if you take other actors like Mike Pratt and another ubiquitous character actor of the day, Ronald Radd, he was only something oh. like 36, was it, when he died? And he yeah. looked like he was 56.
1: Yes, he did, yeah. Oh, he was a wonderful actor. I could just spend the entire podcast saying, oh, wasn't he good? But yes, um, but yes, Paul Ronnie Ratt, I think he had a heart attack. It was just, I don't yeah. think he was particularly regarded as being one of the great drinkers well, of British drink, acting.
0: drinking and the smoking, the attitudes yeah. of that era. People just weren't expected to live. They weren't they expected a- to live a long yeah. time.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Richard, the likes of Richard Burton and Oliver Reed have a lot to answer for because it just became a macho thing um, amongst sort of British actors to uh, that you know, if you were a certain type of British uh, semi Shakespearean leading man, then you caused trouble. And um, thankfully, you know, a few people, you know, a few people of that era have actually admitted that and they said, you know, it took them a long time to get out of that mindset.
0: Incredible. So Doppelganger or Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, whatever you prefer to call it, whichever version of it you prefer to watch. I guess I ought to ask you which version you watch the most, Ian.
1: Um, I tend to watch the Journey to the Far Side of the Sun version. I just watch whichever one's got the nicest picture quality.
0: I'm
1: just just attracted by shiny, bright things. (laughs)
0: We have to mention the ITV showing of 1986 between then and around 1992. This comes up as a topic of conversation quite a lot because it was a print that was shown where the picture was reversed about halfway through the film and it confused everybody. Did it confuse you? Uh, Yes, it
1: did. And it reached the stage actually where I um, I think there was a bit of a Wikipedia argument where people thought this was an urban myth. Uh, and actually, I dug out my VHS of it, and uh, a little sequence of that appears on the Madman release, which is from my VHS.
0: Oh, I shall have to check that out. I haven't seen that.
1: Yeah, as I recall. I, I do still have 12. my
0: VHS version. I do still have my copy, so I know that that story is true i know it's not an urban myth what is an yeah. urban myth though is uh how it happened and i see that very often the telecine operator the the person showing the print is the person mm. blamed for it being like it where in reality as i've researched it and well it doesn't really take too much researching to see that the picture flops at a point where there's a real change in the film if people don't know what a real change is it's where um, one piece of film is joined to another where the negative is originally put together a film is actually made up of smaller roles edited into bigger roles and at the point where there is a real change is where the picture flops over so from observation of the VHS version I've got, it appears to have been optically printed the wrong way round, not flopped by an operator in the telecine booth at the TV station because we haven't mentioned the optical soundtrack of the film. Now, most of the films shown on ITV back in the 70s and 80s did use an optical track. And if you flop the print over, you would also flop the soundtrack over, and it wouldn't you wouldn't hear any sound.
1: Yeah, we should maybe add your bona fides at this point where we, um, for the listeners of this, Ros knows of what she speaks because she worked in the technical department for ITV companies in this very period. And so is the person who would know about this stuff... Well, I didn't work in
0: the technical area, Ian. I worked actually as a person that that used to do telecine bookings and I would take roles of films into a telecine department and it was the techies that used to do the transferring for me. But I did used to get to work with film and see a lot of film and handle a lot of film and uh, their soundtracks as well. So, yes, I've got a little bit of inside knowledge
1: yeah i mean it's like as me as part of my as i as i grandly call myself a film historian i have made an effort to become familiar with different uh, film formats and the meaning of these uh, which does come in handy for anderson stuff because i've taught myself what a techniscope was for instance but it's all theoretical knowledge you've seen the film prints you know you are the person to go to about this knowledge
0: well, you mentioned Techniscope. A lot of the films that were supplied to ITV in the 70s and early 80s were actually made as 4-3 prints because another yes. complaint used to be, oh, it's pan and scan and ITV are messing it up and they've got talking noses. Usually the prints were actually supplied as 4-3 prints with the panning and scanning already done.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, this is still a problem now to an extent with the talking pictures uh, who really make an effort to get the best prints they can. But there are some films where all that's available from whoever owns the rights, the only transfer they've had done is a three pan and scan. Mm. Um, God knows, I'd love to see uh, The Last Valley in a nice widescreen version. Even the DVD of the damn thing is in four three. So it's still a thing now.
0: Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, or Doppelganger, whichever you prefer to call it. Now we know that yeah. that was shot in a ratio known as Academy, which is fourteen yeah. by nine.
1: Yeah, it's very odd when you watch. Uh, I watched the um, Jerry's print of the film, Jerry and Sylvia's print of the film, unmasked, and so about half the shots completely fill the um, the film frame. And about half of them are masked in the camera, which is very. Which yes, is, which is a I think
0: long, I've seen that just, too. Yes.
1: Yeah. And uh, but yeah, it's it's not um, it's not an anamorphic uh, white film or anything like that.
0: No, you can remove the plates, I believe, to make it four or three, and then you've got extra area top and bottom. And of course, if you want to show it in a sixteen nine ratio, which of course the Blu Ray is, then you can frame it for that, you're not losing any detail, not from a 149 picture
1: Yeah, and as film stocks became better that became more the norm than using anamorphic lenses so you get formats like Super 35mm which are designed to be screen shown like that. This division was always designed to be um, which is motion picture high fidelity and was I think 65 or 70mm film and that was always designed to be another way of doing widescreen. And uh, it was just up to the director and producers what format they used. They just masked it off. It
0: seemed Jerry and Sylvia abandoned techniscope then after the two Thunderbirds movies. They just made Doppelganger in this standard format.
1: Yeah, uh, well, there's a trade off of film quality with Technoscope, in that it's, uh, when you're filming it, you're only using half of a 35mm frame. But it made a lot of sense to use it on a Supermarionation film because they wanted a widescreen film uh, because they wanted to get people to go to watch a film and it had to be as different as possible to what you could see on a TV screen. So widescreen makes a lot of sense. But with anamorphic lenses, you couldn't get depth of focus needed on small film sets like, like puppet, puppet film sets, which you can get... With um, which you can get with techniscope because they're not using anamorphic lenses, and uh, the other main users of techniscope were people like Sergio Leone making spaghetti westerns, and that was part of the visual look of those. You get these massive close-ups just of eyes, and you couldn't get those using uh, Cinemascope Panavision lenses. So it's just it's it's about the format where it suits certain types of filmmaking.
0: Other interesting things about Doppelganger, have you ever actually seen a script to it? Because I'd be interested to know in scenes that they included, that they didn't film, scenes that they perhaps did film and then cut out. We keep seeing these photographs of a fight at a swimming pool and it looks like the uh, actor Franco de Rosa, who we know went on into UFO and didn't didn't stay there very long. It seems like his scenes were, were cut out at an early stage? Uh,
1: Yes, I think partially it's to do with pacing and length. Um, You know, I don't think there's anything personal at this stage against Franco de Rosa. Um, But when you're... um, It's a little bit like the opposite of of a conversation we were having about when you lengthen something, you can't just willy-nilly stick scenes in um you know you, you you have to um you know create entire subplots well you can't remove them like that either you know you can't just remove a scene because then an entire subplot wouldn't make sense
0: well we're going so, to talk about this in a later podcast when we examine thunderbirds and how yeah. they extended 30 minute episodes into hour-long episodes and we're, we're going to Talk about this, so that will be yeah. a very interesting topic. I believe that uh, Jerry and Sylvia, when they moved into live action, they possibly had scripts that were overcomplicated, and I've heard the likes of Andrew Pixley. He's written some very interesting viewing notes to accompany the UFO Blu-rays, which uh, say that some of the scripts were a little bit overcomplicated and they had to simplify them just to make the episode fit the hour. And it seems like the writers were just going over the top, trying to create subplot after subplot after subplot and overcomplicating things for the for the amount of time they had to to squeeze in whatever it was. And show a character's motivations for the adult audience, perhaps just a little bit too much.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it even goes to that there are just too many characters originally in UFO. You know, there are so many characters in there, each of whom is given a name and a backstory. And there are far too many leading characters. And uh, even after about half a dozen episodes, characters start dropping out for various reasons. Uh, But, you know, Harry Baird goes, Peter Gardino goes. And so, you know, the the captain of uh, Skydivers suddenly becomes a minor character uh, because you just don't need that many leading men. Um, It's even a little bit of a problem. Do you really need Foster and Freeman?
0: Yes. And of Uh, course, later on, they did jettison Freeman, didn't they?
1: Yeah, uh, although that eventually was um, ITC New York who said, "Get rid of the ugly guy." You know, he just wasn't pretty enough, and um, Jerry never told him. Jerry never told George Sewell for the rest of his life. That's no.
0: another story to elaborate on later.
1: Hurt his feelings too much. It wasn't. It, nothing would have been gained by telling him.
0: Yeah. And of course, George Sewell and Ed Bishop, they were both carried over from Doppelganger. Certainly there's a lot of parallels between the two productions. So, Doppelganger, when it was released, which was around 69, I believe, 1969, the year we landed on the moon.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: How was the film received generally? Was it and did it do any better than the two either of the two Thunderbirds films?
1: Well, the reviews were very positive, Uh, which when I was uh, doing my uh, doppelganger research was one thing that quite surprised me because retrospectively, the reputation of the film for many years was quite poor. But I couldn't find a negative review anywhere of the film. And I found quite a few. Uh, On the Madman release, most of the stuff I've written about the, uh, the film Um, appears as extras not that I got a copy of the DVD (laughs) (laughs) I'm not bitter Um, Special uh, effects always always
0: were thought very highly of weren't they Derek Medding's visual effects work were always praised
1: Yes the central rocket launch sequence looks fabulous Um, and they were very they were blessed with a very good summer that year and were able to do the whole thing outside and it's the making of the scene you know, it just looked, it looks better than the actual moon rocket launching.
0: When I first saw the film, it was on television. I didn't get to see the film until 1978, October of that year, when it was shown in the London area. For the very first time, my reaction to it was, wow. And it looks very much like UFO.
1: Yes, yeah, and a little bit like 2001 which I think was so influential, um, yeah. not in a storytelling way, but the visuals of 2001 transformed science fiction to this day. I mean, Star, the original Star Wars trilogy is so influenced by 2001.
0: But originally, Derek's visual effects, uh, they were up for an award, I do believe, and it lost out to Marooned, which I thought had That's rubbish it. effects.
1: Well, here's the thing. I've no, I haven't been able to confirm that. I can confirm that room does got rubbish effects, um, but I've not been able to find any way of finding out what was nominated for Oscars in a particular year back in the sixties. Oscars, and I would love somebody to be able to confirm if that's true or if that is a um, an urban myth.
0: So it could be fan lore again. So this could be something we put out to Fanderson members here and if anybody knows anything and can enlighten us for our next podcast we can uh, include it there so having done all this research having watched the film you haven't told me um when you first saw it
1: oh that would have been the uh I'm sorry you're you're better on years than me that would have been the infamous flip screening
0: ah 80s Um, then we're talking about mid 80s
1: yeah that would have been the first i saw of it um the most fascinating part though of researching it was um reading the different scripts i found three uh, different versions of the script and it was fascinating to see the script developing and improving i think it's a terrific film i really really like doppelganger a lot it's it's just really interesting to see that how the film was developed and just how good the script got from and from not great beginnings.
0: Not great beginnings.
1: No, the earlier versions of the script, you can see why that was that wasn't ready to film. Um, In what just,
0: way? In what way have you got a couple of examples?
1: I have to say, it's been a while since I've read through them. Uh, so solid examples, I'm going to struggle a bit on. <laughs> But uh, but generally it's um the dialogue improves a lot. Even when watching the film, you know, it's it's one of the things that I really like about Doppelganger anyways. It's it's got some nice pieces for the actors to do, um, to perform. For some reason, uh, the Anderson Life Action Productions have this reputation of being uh oh, it's Jerry was rubbish on scripts, he was it was all about explosions and spaceships and that's nonsense. That's just that is so the opposite of um, Jerry Anderson's um, what he was trying to achieve with his live action work. Um, the whole business about, him, you know, he enjoyed solid drama um, that was, say, about like the power game that was about um, business. And he wanted to bring that into a science fiction story in a way that nobody else had even attempted. Uh, you know, so so in Doppelganger, you've got human drama, you've got all the, the political business about getting the thing launched in the first place. Uh, you've got some aspects of spy drama. Um, I've always been a little bit shaky on why Eurosec has its own spy organisation.
0: <laughs> that <laughs> seems to be a law unto itself.
1: It's their 60s. Everyone everyone loves spies. That's, that's, my, that's my explanation.
0: Well a couple um, of other controversial topics that we haven't mentioned one is the fact that the movie had an american director in robert Parrish. now we know that there were there was friction as a result of uh, him being employed and then clashing with jerry and also there's somebody who was with the jerry anderson unit that had been there a long time we're mentioning john reed who sadly departed after that film and then he went off and started his own company.
1: Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't have got Rupert the Bear, would we, without
0: this?
1: (laughs) Yeah, John John Reed and Mary Turner's uh, productions kept the the TV puppetry flag flying for some years. And uh, my pet theory is that that would have been a way of keeping Century 21 going. Would be to hold back and still and make something for a younger audience while still making live action mm. things for an older audience. I digress. Uh, John Reed was put into an impossible situation. As a director of photography, his loyalties to his director is how he saw it. Mm. Uh, but he was at the same time one of the directors of um, Century 21 Productions. So Jerry very much saw that he had been um, the, the production company. Had been betrayed by one of its own directors, which is why um, Reed was asked to leave. But say, Reed's point of view was that as a film technician, he's working for the director. And the whole subject of the director wanting his own way on the film, I think in a way that's Jerry's, Jerry and Sylvia's um, inexperience in working in what is a film a director's medium. Television is a producer's medium and a writer's medium, film is a director's medium in most cases. And at that period, there was a thing called Writer of First Cut, which directors of fought and fought for. Uh, American films were getting to look very old-fashioned in the earlier part, of, in the 50s increasingly, and in the early part of the 60s, compared to films that you, you were getting from Europe and from Asia. American films were getting to look very staid and old-fashioned. Uh, and one of the explanations was that uh, you were getting auteur directors, you were getting directors who had something to say and had the power to say it in European films, and people could see how much better that made those films. So American directors fought very hard for the right to produce their cut of the film. And that was a situation that Jerry walked into. Uh, Robert Parrish wanted to make the film he wanted to make. Um, And pretty much any director from the States who would have been employed at that point, apart from Total Hacks, would the situation would probably have turned off. And I have to remember as well, the film had been delayed for six months until any saleable director was available. They waited and waited and waited at Universal's insistence, mm. and then Jerry would have just got one of his guys to to do it. Do we no, know, you know anything I mean? about
0: Robert Parrish's background prior to Doppelganger?
1: Yeah, I mean, he's a very experienced director. I mean, he worked in lots of things like 50s film noir and things like that. He did things in France. His previous film before that was I think called Duffy uh, with Jay's Coburn, which is a very old uh, sort of um, out there psychedelic adventure film. Um, has dated rather, unfortunately. I much prefer Doppelganger. Um, I kind of like his work um, but he was never an A-list director but but I'd say he was the nearest thing to an A-list director who was available because um, you know there's so much film was being made back then.
0: But we don't, um, we, we've not seen his name since Doppelganger either, have we? No, we
1: did do a few things after. But um, I mean, sadly, of course, he's dead now. But um, but yeah, he didn't do his, uh, he didn't do his career a lot of favours. Um, I say, which was a shame. Which is a shame because, uh, let's say, the film got good reviews. The studio didn't like it. Then um, I mean, it was a full year between delivering the film uh, to Universal and then actually releasing it without any particular premiere. And let's say, and it just sort of snuck out to British cinemas for two weeks as part of a double mm. bill, and then that was yellow. off.
0: Sounds like The Wicker Man all over again. Yeah, I mean, at least there
1: aren't huge chunks of the wicker man, that, uh, sorry, of um, Doppelganger, which are part of a motorway flyover or something, which apparently <laughs> is the story with that. The cut scenes we used as ballast uh, in the making of a, of, a, of a concrete motorway flyover. So, you know, we're not going to see those bits again. I mean, the other thing I should add as well is that the film convinced Lou Grade that Jerry and Sylvia could make UFO, that they were ready to do a live action series. So Lou didn't have any kind of a financial interest in the mm. film. It was done for Universal, but he was certainly impressed by it as well. So he certainly was a very effective calling card.
0: It's a shame, isn't it, that it, it inspired Lou Gray, but not the Americans. And the problem with Jerry's shows and films have always been the American market, but he had no trouble at all in enticing the Landau's for Space 1999, having showed them this film, the kind of quality of film production that he was capable of.
1: Yeah, I think I think also he had to throw... A lot of money was thrown the Landau's way. Uh, they held out and held out to, uh, to get a lot of money for that, um, for appearing. And they specifically wanted uh, something in which they could appear together. Um, space 1999 had a lot of... Um, had a lot of pluses going for it but yeah they they could show anyone that film and just on a level of physical filmmaking you could see that there's a very high degree of competence going on there
0: well there's ian i'm going to say a big thank you for uh, coming on here onto this first fanderson podcast and hopefully you're going to join me again for the second one chatting about doppelganger and journey to the far side of the sun today um A little bit later on we've got a bit of time left so we're going to have a quick word with the Fanderson chairman who wants to uh, talk about some of the latest products that I think are winding their way to you. Some of the things coming through the fanderson sales that are probably slightly delayed because of the coronavirus outbreak also we want to uh, just hear a little snippet from that interview that archive interview of barry moore so once again big thanks ian fryer fab editor thanks for joining us today thank
1: you thank you very much it's been great fun
0: again ian and very informative i definitely think we ought to get you back on to the next podcast that we do so it's fanderson the official jerry and sylvia anderson appreciation society my name is Roz. Uh, Glad to have your company, and I'm going to whiz back to the year 2005 now, and in March of that year, in Basildon, Essex, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to sit and chat with Barry Morse for about half an hour around a table and interview him all about his career. And I've extracted some uh, clips of that interview, and you can hear what he had to say about Space 1999. The next prompt I've got, um, I'm going to give a clue and say it's from Space1999. And I think this is from the mouth of one of your directors on the series.
2: Stop the foam! Stop the foam. Oh yes, that was. we had an episode in which for some reason or another, some power in the outer world filled our headquarters with a kind of foam. Like, just like soap suns, you know. Well, of course, as you know, in the film trade, more often than not, you have to shoot things more than once. And so we did take one of this episode where they were pumping this foam into the set and it came up to pretty well the top of our heads. And then uh, the director said, yeah, all right, uh, yes, now uh, take two. Clear the foam. Well, of course, nobody had thought that they would have to clear all this. So it took most of the rest of the day. To clear out this foam before we could do take two. I remember that, yes, yes. Space 1999 was curious in many ways, and as you probably know, or your listeners perhaps do, I only appeared in the first series uh, because, frankly, between you and me and this microphone, I didn't fancy the quality of our writing very much. And so I uh, i always remember... I. Uh, conspired with Martin Lando, who was one of our co-stars on this series, because our producers had previously produced a lot of puppet shows, I said to Martin Lando, why don't we on this next scene pretend that we are puppets? And so we decided to do this without telling anybody else and they started the camera going And I started as if I was a puppet, saying, but there are men dying out there, John. And he said, oh, gee, that's terrible. uh, Whatever it was, you know. And so we had this printed and passed to our producers, hoping it would deliver a bit of a hint to them that we thought the dialogue that they'd written for us was all too suitable for puppets, but not much suitable for human beings. However, they, they ignored it completely. So eventually, when they came to suggest that we should do a second series, I wasn't too keen, so I went to Jerry Anderson, our producer, and, and wickedly, I, I said, as you gather I'm almost full of mischief, I said, uh, uh, Jerry, I do wish you every kind of luck with this second series that you're going to do, but uh, since the choice is on my side, I think uh, I will decide not to be with you, because if it's all the same to you, I'd like to go and play with the grown-ups for a while. Ouch, I bet that hurt a bit. That didn't go down too well, but so I enjoyed passing on, and I gather from what the viewers have told me that the second series, if anything, wasn't even as good as the first.
0: So an interview there with the late, great Barry Morse, who I managed to catch up with back in March 2005, such a long time ago. We return to the present now and another person joining me on this uh, podcast today is uh, the chairman of Fanderson, Nick Williams, who has just been elected for a further uh, five years. Uh, He's obviously a glutton for punishment here because, as it says on the Fanderson website, he's proud to have been your chairman since uh, 2007. Lovely to be chatting with you uh, today, Nick, on what is the very first Fanderson podcast?
3: Hello, Ros. It's lovely to be part of it.
0: (laughs) 2007, you've been the chairman for quite some time now. And what kind of things have you seen happen with the club during your tenure? In what way do you think it's evolved?
3: Yeah, I think the important thing for me was ensuring that the club was approachable, that people felt they could contribute to it, have their say, um, and also you know we're not all encyclopedic um some people just love the shows and want to be able to talk about them and share their love without knowing the ins and outs of exactly which shade of paint was used on a model or whatever and and you know nowadays that's called accessibility and and you know to me that was the one of the most important things that i wanted to bring to the club
0: Mm. we're going to try and bring some of the information like you're talking about there nick Uh, uh, in these podcasts and try and unearth some things perhaps that we haven't heard before about the shows so not too much uh, a lecture but we're certainly going to explore the Jerry Anderson shows in great detail I mean on this program today we've talked about Doppelganger and certainly one of my favorite films I don't know if it's one of yours
3: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely it is yeah
0: and uh, of course some of the other productions as well we, we perhaps will look at the half hour thunderbirds being extended to an hour we'll look at some of the music cds because we've just done a lovely ufo4 cd set which is winding its way to members isn't it at the moment
3: well it is and I, uh, <laughs> actually i didn't pay you to say that but yeah i, I it has been an absolute runaway success um yeah, thunderbirds we were so pleased that we were able to do the the Soundtrack album for that a few years ago, and it sold out quicker than any other merchandise item ever. Um, in speed of sales, it was quickly followed by Space Year One, but UFO has, has definitely come through as our third top seller ever. And we've now sold nearly 40% of our stock in just over two months, so um, yeah, it's been an absolute runaway success.
0: I see questions pop up on uh, the Fanderson Facebook page. Do you? hop on there regularly and uh, try and take note at what some of the people are saying
3: i have a look at it um you know I, I wouldn't be much of a chairman if i didn't see what I, my members are saying um unfortunately it's not possible to respond to absolutely everybody that posts things on there so what i do say is you know if anyone has got something they definitely want an answer to they need to email us and that gives us a chance to give a considered reply. But, yeah, definitely we, ha- we have a look at what's going on in the Facebook group, what people are saying they like, what they don't like, what could be better. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, Facebook, social media in general has been a great tool for, you know, again, that accessibility and people being able to share their thoughts and ideas.
0: We must mention the coronavirus, COVID-19 lockdown situation because as we're on the topic of merchandise, things might be taking a little bit longer than normal to get to people, some of the members that have ordered stuff. So I guess the message is what exactly?
3: Well, the main message really is please be patient. We've got a fantastic team mailing our packages for us, whether that's a membership package or fab, or the merchandise, um, and you know they are working under lockdown situation as well, uh, which is making things a little bit more difficult than usual. What with social distancing, everyone's having to be a little bit more careful than they would be normally. Having said that, they're doing a fantastic job. The you know, product is still getting mailed quickly. It it unfortunately is falling down in the mail system and we're unable to predict what kind of service you're going to get in Basildon compared to Bristol or, or, you know, even worse when you get overseas where we've had people in the same city receive products weeks apart. So, we, you know, it's impossible to predict. So all I can say is please be patient. I think from the feedback we're getting, it's now taking around four weeks in the UK for stuff to be reliably delivered and probably a six weeks elsewhere in the world so um yeah please just allow a bit more time for for people to do their stuff in what is a a really difficult time there's
0: another fab magazine on the way as well very soon isn't there
3: yeah so fab 95 is at the printer as i speak and so that will be mailed hopefully within the next week or so and that's going to include for people who have just renewed their membership our brand new century 21 Puppet catalog as wow. well Wow,
0: obviously, life is a little bit harder, and particularly for you, Nick, at the moment, you've been in the middle of moving house.
3: yes, so i'm I'm without all my stuff around me. I've got my <laughs> computer, um, but I can't whip a DVD off the shelf as I would do normally to check something, or um, I haven't got access to all my reference books because um, i'm in temporary accommodation at the moment so um yeah it, it's i mean other people have got it a lot worse than me and i i totally understand that but well we're making the best of the situation as it is at the moment yeah. well
0: as long as you're keeping well and staying safe well hopefully people are going to listen and enjoy this fanderson podcast but i've got to ask you nick what would you like to see happen in the next five years
3: Oh, um, well, you've kind of put me on the spot a bit there, <laughs> Roz. Um, I suppose overall it's going to be business as usual. You know, the club members like what we do and so if it ain't broke, you don't fix it. Um, there are a few things that I've, I'm going to keep under my hat because I don't like to raise false hopes. I think the, the main thing that, that I would really like to see is more people getting involved. We did our convention last year, a super celebration, and we said at the time it was going to be our last full weekend convention for the main reason that all of us involved in, in doing these things are getting older. It, it, it's harder to stage the event. It's hard work getting through the weekend, and it's hard work recovering afterwards. I'm hoping more people will get involved. I'm hoping people will say, we'd like to stage an event, and will you, will you help us? And some good things are, have already happened. You know, we've 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 got new people involved. So, people who have been reading Fab magazine will have seen Ian Wheeler's come on board to do the end credits column, uh, which has been really interesting. Um, and a guy that's been a club member for many years, Chris Drake, last year created a superb book about the Super Space Theatre programmes. So I'm hoping for more things like that, more people that will come out of the woodwork and say, I've got an idea of something um, that we can work together with and share the load a bit. Um, So, you know, there's plenty of interest out there. It's just making sure we can harness it and make the best of it.
0: I think what's important is for the television shows of Gerry and Sylvia Anderson to keep being screened. And it's only through that you're really going to get new club members joining, really through... (sighs) the shows being on and they don't seem to be on very much anymore so are we part of a dying breed
3: um i don't know to be honest i mean certainly for for broadcast television it's it's a difficult product for people to place where channels are very specific about what they're trying to present um and i think you know just looking at itv for example they don't have a channel that that Thunderbirds would easily sit on. You know, it, It's not a children's show, it's a family show, but you know, ITV's family shows are, are kind of reality and soaps on one, um, young teenagers, 20s, 30s on ITV2, and a very old population on ITV3, and, and lads and sport and action movies on four. And so it doesn't really sit in any of the broadcasts, But it does sit on streaming services. So, you know, ITV have just put some of the episodes on BritBox. So they can be streamed. And we do know, you know, as I said, I've been involved in the club over 30 years. And I know certainly when the BBC showed Thunderbirds, for example, we had a huge influx of new members. So it does have an effect, Um, I think, at the moment more what we're seen is word of mouth through things like social media is what is drawing people to the club and keeping us fresh and keep drawing new people in well
0: here's to the next five years and uh, I'm going to say that I've been <laughs> Ros Connors I've thoroughly enjoyed putting together this podcast chatting with Ian Fryer the uh, fab magazine editor and of course a writer in his own right and film historian as well and also speaking to you Nick uh, Fanderson club chairman Uh, From 2007 to the present, Uh, I want to wish you good luck, obviously. And uh, I guess the final word on this podcast goes to you, to the fans.
3: Um, Oh, do you put me on the spot there? What can I say? Well, thanks very much Roz for putting this together. Um, it's a bit of a test for us. It's, it's a new market we've not been involved in before. Um, I hope people will really like it. I hope they'll certainly tell us whether they like it or not and what they'd like to see in future editions. So thank you for putting this together. It's, uh, it's been really good.
0: Anderson is the world's only official appreciation society for the work of Gerry and Sylvia Anderson, with its own club magazine, exclusive merchandise and more. If you'd like more information, please see our website at fanderson.org.uk. A Fanderson Copyright Production.